Acts chapter 14, 1 through 7, let's read it together. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. This is God's word. Now you may be seated. Oh, wait. No, I'm just kidding. Well, it's good to see you this morning. If you're uh, with us online, uh, a reminder, you can find us on YouTube. Wherever you are, you may be on YouTube um, at LifePoint Church of Olympia. If you're if you're on YouTube, you can also find us at mylpcoli.com forward slash media. And then uh, you can take notes today at mylpcoli.com forward slash notes. On my way uh, here this morning, I happened to uh, connect with my neighbor, uh, he he said, you're off to preach, right? I said, yeah. He said, give him hell. <laughs> and so I said, I will do that, and I will give him heaven, heaven as well. You know, everybody knows that a letter carrier has one job, and that's to deliver the mail in spite of rain, snow, sleet, or hail, right? And uh, you may have heard the story of a, a mailman in Brooklyn, New York, who spent an entire decade avoiding that job by intentionally hoarding over 40,000 pieces of mail over a 10-year period. Eight years ago, Joseph Brucato admitted to authorities that beginning in 2005, he had hidden over a ton of mail, 2,500 pounds roughly, to be, to be somewhat precise, meant for customers in the Flatbush neighborhood, of Brooklyn. A postal supervisor became suspicious that Brucato was up to something uh, when he noticed that his personal vehicle was stuffed, literally stuffed, with undelivered letters. So he blew the whistle, called in the authorities, and uh, when investigators interrogated Brucato about all that mail, he admitted to hoarding priority mail, first-class mail, regular mail. It took five postal agents five hours to remove the massive stash of stolen letters from his car and from his apartment. You know, we hear stories like that, and we might be shocked, we might be angered, we might uh, even be enraged at that kind of conduct on the part of an employee of the United States Postal Service. I mean, how, how dare he, right? How dare he? Just imagine how the lives of, of uh, the intended recipients may have been impacted, their relationships, uh, their business, their employment, their financial well-being, and, and so many other things. And uh, so much communication they missed that, that may have led them to very different life experiences. Now think with me for a moment about the fact that from the creation, God has been sending letters to the human race. Through all that he's made, through the law and the prophets, by the Holy Spirit, 
um, and most clearly and fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And is it possible that that you and I are actually a whole lot like Joseph Brucato? Is that possible? God has trusted us to make delivery of the greatest and, and most important message of all time that can redeem, that can transform people's lives, rescue them from being separated from him for all eternity. Do we simply hoard it to ourselves and, and neglect to make the delivery? The gospel of the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that message. We're called to be the deliverers, the letter carriers of, of that message to the ends of the earth. And so I wonder, do we feel the same shock, uh, the same outrage about the gospel being hoarded and not delivered that we do about the prospect of our own mail being stolen? Imagine the possibilities if we were actually faithful to make the right deliveries to the right people at the right times. Paul and Barnabas were two men who were faithful. Last week we saw them in the city of Pisidian Antioch um, where they proclaimed the gospel. Many of them believed, both Jews and Gentiles, but then their opponents stirred up the people against them. Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet, it says, traveled 90 miles to the southeast to the city of Iconium, uh, and that's where we joined them this morning. Um, I want to show you a map. I finally found a map that kind of helps you see where these guys have gone. And you see Antioch up there to the east, uh, and uh, they they went down to um, Seleucia uh, or Seleucia, and, uh, and then from there they went to Salamis on the island of Cyprus. They traveled southward to Paphos, and then northward from there to Italia, and then to Perga. And then up to Antioch, the far north, Pisidian Antioch. And today then we're traveling down to Iconium. And all of that today is in Turkey, the country of Turkey. Iconium was, was one of the chief cities in the southern part of the Roman province of Galatia. It was a center of agriculture and commerce. Uh, today it's uh, still there. It's, today it's known as Konya. It's Turkey's seventh largest city. When Paul and Barnabas were there, uh, it was culturally still a Hellenistic city or a Greek city. Uh, though it had a strong pro-Roman political orientation, it's likely that the gods of both the Greek and Roman pantheons were worshipped in Iconium. Some speculate that that's actually where the name came from, the Icon, city of Iconium, Iconium, city of icons, city of statues. Uh, city of idols. And in those days, it's estimated that there were some four to five million Jews living abroad. Not four to five million in Iconium itself, but four to five million Jews living abroad that is outside of Israel. So every major city um, had at least one synagogue, and Iconium was no exception. So arriving in Iconium then, uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, were entering yet another multicultural, multilinguistic multi-religious city. And we find Paul and Barnabas engaged first in what I would just call persuasion. Persuasion. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way 
that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And it's not surprising that arriving in a new city, Paul and Barnabas went first to the synagogue. Uh, we've seen that Paul's missionary strategy included these two pillars. Uh, remember that it was city-based and synagogues first. City-based and synagogues first. Paul understood the strategic value of reaching a city to... Uh, to influence the countryside. It, he understood that it doesn't quite work the same way the other way around. And and so if you can capture the city, the, he who wins the cities wins the world. If you can win the cities, then you can win also the countryside. And he understood the place, the priority of the Jews and God's kingdom agenda. He had a personal passion for his own people, which we've seen the Jews to come to know Jesus as their Messiah, their Christ, their Savior, But their mission to Iconium was clearly not exclusive to the Jews because Luke tells us here in verse 1 that they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Notice with me that six-word phrase, they spoke in such a way. I'd, I'd like us to just consider that together for a moment, to consider what that phrase expresses about the content, about the power, and about the manner of their conversation as they arrived in Iconium. First, then, their content. Clearly, uh, Paul and Barnabas wasted no time in getting down to the work of evangelism, communicating the good news of the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? The gospel is the message that humankind is sinful, separated from God by our sin and therefore under the judgment and condemnation that is the just compensation for our rebellion against our Creator. And you might say, well, that doesn't sound like very good news to me at all. Uh, But wait for it. God, in His great love for us, in order to solve the predicament of our separation from Him, sent His one and only Son to be born of a woman, uh, taking on human flesh, in order to offer, at last, the the full and final sacrifice for all of our sin, so that God's just wrath could be satisfied, so that our sins could be forgiven, that we could be reconciled to God. God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ to die on the cross as our perfect substitute, to be buried and then to be raised again from the dead, defeating even death itself. And and as the result of that, all who by faith trust in God through personal faith in Jesus Christ receive the gifts of sins forgiven, relationship reconciled, and eternity secured. That is good news. Amen? Second, now consider the power of their conversations. If, if the gospel was the content, consider the power of their conversations. They, they conducted their conversations in the power of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, you might say, well, it doesn't say that in the text. How, how can, how can we know that? We know it because many believed. And as we saw last week, only God can bring about belief in the heart and the mind of a sinner who is separated from Him. Only God can breathe life into dead bodies, dead spirits. We saw last week that that uh, no one comes to faith in Jesus unless God does the drawing, God does the wooing, God does the convicting. 
And third, notice the manner of their conversations. The manner of their conversations. Luke says they spoke. And there are other words he could have used if he intended to convey a different kind of interaction, but but he uses the word laleo. It, it, it tells us that they simply talked with people, uh, engaged them in conversations, chatted them up, introduced the message of the gospel into a, a simple conversation. Now, earlier in this series, I shared with you that I heard someone say of the early believers that they gossiped the gospel, or at least mumbled the message, right? They gossiped the gospel. They simply had personal conversations that centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his book, uh, Great Commission, Great Compassion, uh, Paul Borthwick tells the story of visiting a McDonald's in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and, and noticing a young man named Peter behind the counter. Uh, Peter happened to be a part of the young adult ministry at Borthwick's church, so he greeted him. Uh, it turned out that Peter was about to take his break. They were able to enjoy a cup of coffee together. Uh, knowing that Peter had just graduated from Harvard University with a master's degree, and knowing that Harvard master's degree students don't usually aspire to work counter at McDonald's, Borthwick asked, what are you doing here? To which Peter answered, well, he explained, I graduated in May, but I went four months without finding a job, so I said to myself, I need some income to pay bills, and this is where I've ended up, at least for now. Borthwick began to say, well, gosh, I'm sorry to hear that. It must be hard, but Peter cut him off. He said, no. Don't be sorry. God has me here. This place is giving me awesome opportunities to share my faith. I'm on a shift that includes a Buddhist guy from Sri Lanka, a Muslim fellow from Lebanon, a Hindu lady from India, and a fellow Christian from El Salvador. It's awesome. I get to be a global missionary to my co-workers while asking, would you like fries with that? You see, Peter found himself in a setting that, that he never would have chosen as part of his long-term plan. But his mindset of living as a sent person shaped the way that he looked at his circumstances and at the people around him. And so he capitalized on the opportunity by engaging his co-workers in simple conversations that included the message of the gospel. You know, here's a news flash. There are people who will believe in Jesus if you will take the time to tell them about him. And if your only exposure to evangelism has been someone in a three-piece suit standing in a pulpit hollering and sweating profusely, the idea of, of simply sharing the good news about Jesus in the context of a calm, caring, personal conversation may come as a real relief to you. Paul and Barnabas' task with Jews was to persuade them that that the long-awaited Messiah is Jesus. And because they knew God's word as it's expressed in the law and the prophets, when the puzzle piece of, of the identity of Messiah, who he is, is set in place, everything else kind of 
falls into place and, and fits together for them as well. Their task with Gentiles at its core, as it is with us today, was to persuade them that there is just one, just one true and living sovereign creator God who sent his son in the person of Jesus Christ to solve the predicament of our sin and separation from him. So understand this morning that that Paul and Barnabas never followed a a one-size-fits-all, cookie-cutter kind of approach uh, to evangelism, but they did communicate the same message that centered on the gospel and the person and work of Jesus Christ. It all came down to Jesus. The result was that a disparate group of people in Iconium came together around the gospel of Jesus, Jews and Gentiles. But if they were united in faith, others were united in opposition. Our second key word this morning is poison. You go from persuasion to poison. Verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. You know, here, here's something that's simply axiomatic, that, that when great success in evangelism is experienced, great opposition also arises. You can just count on it. And it'll come from the most surprising angles. A set of circumstances similar to what they'd previously experienced in, in Pisidian Antioch began to evolve also here at Iconium. In fact, this became a very predictable pattern in Paul's missional experience, that there was initial acceptance by the people, there was receptiveness to the gospel, followed by increasing hostility from the Jews and from Gentiles whose political and social and financial well-being was negatively affected by so many others converting to Christianity. Luke says it was the unbelieving Jews who stirred up the Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas. That word unbelieving is apatheo. It's, it's the word, of course, from which we get our word apathy. I was sharing this with Evan this week, and, and he's told me his, his dad has a saying, so much apathy in the world, but who cares? <laughs> in this case... Apatheo doesn't mean primarily to not care, which is the way we think of it, but but rather, in this case, to actively refuse to be persuaded, to remain indifferent and to, to be resistant to the gospel. To stir up means to agitate, and, and in Iconium it probably bore a significant resemblance to the unscrupulous slander campaign waged against them in Antioch when the Jews as you remember from last week, overtly contradicted and reviled uh, these two godly men. And then Luke says they not only agitated against Paul and Barnabas, but they also poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against them. I don't know if you saw it, but in the news this week, there was a uh, a story of a Southern California dermatologist uh, who was arrested earlier this month for allegedly poisoning her husband, over a period of months. And her husband was, was first diagnosed with a severe gastritis, and his doctor uh, was mystified. Even though he was being treated, he was mystified by uh, 
the fact that it was mysteriously getting worse and worse. At some point, the husband began to suspect that his wife was, in fact, poisoning him. So he set up uh, some hidden cameras uh, in their home, particularly in the kitchen, and the camera captured her on three separate occasions, reaching under the counter, pulling out a red jug of Drano, and pouring small amounts into his beverages. And the man, having discovered that, eventually recovered, but he, but he sustained physical injuries for which he will need long-term treatment. She was poisoning his body. The Jews in Iconium were poisoning the souls of the Gentiles. The word translated mind here is suke or psyche, the Greek word for soul. It means not only the intellect, not only the mental processes, but, but comprehensively the whole of one's inner person, one's intellect, one's emotions, one's will. You know, for some people, the good news is bad news. Paul put it this way to the believers in Corinth. He said, we Christians have the unmistakable scent of Christ, discernible alike to those who are being saved and to those who are heading for death. To the latter, it seems like the very smell of doom. To the former, it has the fresh fragrance of life itself. Two kinds of people sensing one aroma, one fragrance, the scent of Jesus Christ. To those who are being saved, he said, it's experienced as this fresh fragrance of life. And to those who are on the highway to hell, it's experienced as the putrid odor of a rotting corpse. And because those who are perishing perceive the aroma of Christ as the stench of death, they wage war against it. There's been a battle going on since the dawn of human history for the souls of men and women. Satan hates God, he hates his image bearers, and because he can't harm God, he attacks those who bear the image of God. It's why he comes against you, it's why he comes against your marriage and your family. God created his image bearers male and female, for example, and it should come as no surprise to us that Satan is mounting a campaign to persuade our children that their gender is a fluid thing, that a binary understanding of human sexuality can't possibly fit everyone, that that boys may actually be girls and girls may actually be boys or they may be something in between. So your pronouns today may be different than they were yesterday and something else again tomorrow. In the immortal words of the kinks, girls will be boys and boys will be girls. It's a mixed up, muddled up, shook up world. Satan intends to confuse and deceive and, and, and he wages that war in our minds. Jesus said of him in John eight forty four, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And then in chapter 10, verse 10, he added, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. 
So things were starting to heat up again in Iconium like they had in Antioch. Time to pack up and move on, right? Wrong. Notice their persistence. Their persistence. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Notice that little word so at the beginning of verse 3. What does that so means? It's the same word that gets translated uh, therefore uh, on other occasions. Therefore, they remained. The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their minds against the brothers. So, therefore, because the Jews were poisoning the minds of the Gentiles, they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. You may recall that a few weeks ago we thought together about Jesus' parable of the soils. In that parable, Jesus told of a gardener who went out to sow seed. And as he did that, some of the seed fell on the pathway and little birds came and stole it away. And later in in his explanation of that parable to his disciples, Jesus told them that the seed represents the word of God, the gospel, and the little birds represent Satan who comes to steal away God's word before it can take root. And, and, and here in Iconium is yet another graphic application of the truth and the power of that parable. Paul and Barnabas had shared the gospel with many and many Jews and Gentiles believed the message about Jesus, putting their faith in him. And now opposition had come. Should they bolt and run? Absolutely not. And they, what they did was that they remained to protect the seed of God's word that had taken root in the hearts of these new believers so that it would not be stolen away by the enemy. They they knew that Christians who were not grounded in their faith would be easy prey for the enemy, that he could easily steal God's word from them, that he could twist it and distort it in such a way that they became confused and deceived. So Paul and Barnabas remained to see that, to see that seed grow up to maturity in, in their hearts and their lives, that, that it would bear fruit. And so they spoke boldly for the Lord. They, they didn't hold anything back. They, they taught them the fullness of God's word so that they would be fully persuaded and immovable from their faith in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, how I hope that you understand this morning how much your mind matters to your endurance in the faith. How I hope that you're fully persuaded that your soul has an enemy who wants to attack you, confuse you, deceive you. How I hope that you're convinced that there really is an enemy who wants to come against you and your spouse and your children and your grandchildren, the members of your church family, even your pastors and leaders, and steal away God's word from them. He knows that his eternal destiny is the lake of fire, and he wants to take as many with him as possible in defiance of God. Paul wrote in Romans 12 that the only way you will not become conformed to this world, 
The only way you can defend against the world system pressing you into its mold is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can clearly understand the will of God and do it. And God's means for the renewal of your mind is his word taught by the Spirit. There's no substitute in the life of discipleship for a steady diet of God's word. Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Have you noticed any arguments, lofty opinions being raised against the knowledge of God these days? And Paul urged the believers in Ephesus to take up the whole armor of God, including the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and the shield of faith, by which we may extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Paul and Barnabas didn't run. Why? Because they had faith in God, they had faith in his word, and they had skin in the game. They weren't part-time disciples. They weren't merely hired hands in the kingdom of God. And Luke says that the Lord bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. That is, the Lord granted the particular working of the Spirit by signs and wonders in order to confirm, in order to validate the bold teaching, teaching of God's word as it was brought by Paul and Barnabas. You know, and, and here we have, I think, a concise representation of the role of signs and wonders, things like tongues and healings and even resurrections. They are given by God the Holy Spirit not to entertain Christians, but to accompany the proclamation of the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus, to accompany the teaching of his word, for what purpose? To substantiate it in the hearts and the minds of those who hear it, and to persuade those who receive it that it has come, in fact, from the heart and mind of God. The reformer John Calvin wrote regarding signs and wonders that God hardly ever allows miracles to be detached from his word. Their true use is the establishing of the gospel in its full and genuine authority. We might ask why Paul and Barnabas' ministry here in Iconium was accompanied by signs and wonders, but not in Pisidian Antioch. Why here? And the answer is a great big, we don't know. We don't know. What we do know is that the Spirit of God works sovereignly in the ways he chooses, at the times and in the places and through the people he chooses, and according to the need of those who are listening to the message. And you and I should never, ever, ever attempt to manipulate the movement of the Spirit. So these two men remained, they taught the word of God freely and boldly, and then came persecution. Persecution. But the people of the city, verse verse 4, people of the city were divided. 
Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. See, again, now that the gospel unites and the gospel divides. It unites those who believe and divides them from us, or divides others from us, rather. Some sided with the Jews, unpersuaded by Paul and Barnabas teaching or by the signs and wonders they performed, but nevertheless persuaded by the slander they were hearing from the Jews. Gospel will divide. It will divide nations. It will divide cities, towns, villages. It will divide marriages. It will divide families. It will divide friends. We saw earlier that Paul said there are two kinds of people in the world, those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Those who will inherit eternal life in the kingdom of God and those who are on the highway to hell. When Luke says in verse 5 that an attempt was made to mistreat and stone Paul and Barnabas, uh, the word translated attempt implies a sudden and violent movement forward. And we don't, it, it doesn't appear that they were actually assaulted, but I think here it seems to mean that the opposition that had been simmering beneath the surface for all the time they had been in Iconium suddenly, unexpectedly reached a boiling point. And so again, they packed up this time and left for the cities of Lystra and Derby. And some might say, well, I thought Paul and Barnabas were courageous men. I mean, you just said they remained. They, they hung in there. Why didn't they just trust God to protect them? Well, I don't think that the Bible ever teaches that we should make ourselves vulnerable to mistreatment and the possibility of martyrdom when it can be avoided. When it can be avoided. In those memorable words of Kenny Rogers, you got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. They decided to leave when it became clear that, that what had come to a head wasn't an idle threat but that there was, in fact, an imminent plot to do them harm, even to put them to death. They decided to get out of Dodge and live to preach another day. In his second letter to his protege, Timothy, Paul would later write, You have have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all them the Lord rescued me. And Timothy knew all about Paul's sufferings in Lystra because it was in Lystra that Paul and Timothy first met. Lystra was where Timothy grew up. It was his hometown Lystra was 20 miles east of Iconium. Derby was 10 miles further to the southeast. And in a sense, we say, well, why did they, why did they go there? Why did, why did they flee to Lystra and Derby? 
in a sense, Lystra and Derby represented the Wild West. Uh, even though they they went east to get there. The Roman system of justice was pervasive, it was effective, but there were some places where the long arm of the law didn't necessarily reach, and, and to those places Paul and Barnabas now went. Some might ask, why did they keep on? Most of us, American evangelicals, would would feel discouraged, we'd feel threatened, we'd feel fearful, we would feel justified in just uh, packing up and going home. What kept these guys going? I think it was simply that the Spirit encouraged them, that the Spirit tantalized them with the prospect of more and more people coming to know Jesus through them. It was that dynamic of possibility that drove them forward. Possibility. Verse 7, and there, they, having arrived in Lystra, they continued to preach the gospel. Verse 7 reminds us of the, the singular vision which possessed Paul and Barnabas. They knew what God had called them to do. Nothing was going to prevent them from doing it. Two applications as I wrap up this morning. The first is this, that, that there are many reasons, I think, for us today to become frightened and discouraged as we survey our world. There are wars, there are rumors of wars, there are natural disasters everywhere, earthquakes, hurricanes, typhoons, there's political corruption, moral degradation, financial stresses, fear for the future. But here's another news flash. Jesus said there would be all of these things. All of them. So, so let's encourage each other. And by encourage, I mean let's instill courage in each other. Not just pat each other on the back. Not just shake each other's hands and smile on a Sunday morning. But let's inspire courage in each other. Let's lock arms together. Let's follow the example of Paul and Barnabas and not let the enemy or his representatives deter us from the mission that God has given to us as a community of followers of Jesus Christ here in Olympia. There are so many in our neighborhoods who don't know Jesus. And I would just suggest to you this morning that the answer to what's going on for us as Christians, is not to flee to other states that have a more conservative political structure. But the answer is for us to remain and be faithful here, to proclaim the gospel here, to exhibit courage here, because there are so many who don't know Jesus, have never, ever heard the gospel So let's do for them what Paul and Barnabas did for the people in every community they visited and keep on communicating the gospel to as many as will listen. Let's keep making Jesus known. Let's keep serving. Let's keep praying. Let's keep stewarding our finances for the advancement of the kingdom. Let's keep gathering together on Sundays, not neglecting that. 
gathering together during the week. We need each other. We need each other. Second application. Uh, let's keep boldly teaching the Word of God here at Life Point Church. It's the Word that transforms us, transforms and renews our minds. Let's keep boldly teaching the Word. Every child in our church, every teen, every adult needs us to be faithful in teaching God's Word. Let's not give in to deception, as so many believers are doing these days. But rather, let's renew our confidence in the, in the inspiration and the authority of God's Word. God's Word will never fail. There are two, two things that will last for all of eternity, people and God's Word. That's what Jesus said. Let's allow the seed of God's word to germinate, take root, and grow to maturity in our lives and in the life of our church. Jesus is near. Don't you sense that? Jesus is near, so keep looking up. He's just at the door. Be alert. Don't become discouraged. Don't give up. Lean on the Lord. Lean on each other. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways that it speaks directly into our lives. And uh, Lord, would you encourage us in these dark days that seem to be getting darker. Lord, Lord, would you encourage us? Lord, would you draw us close to yourself? Lord, would you give us boldness in our witness for Christ, uh, knowing that time is drawing short and that, that if we fail to deliver the mail, many, many, many will never have the opportunity to receive it and to experience a change in their lives like they've never known. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.